Well, good morning, everybody. We're back into us preparing for uh, this, in this Holy Week, the, um, the final conclusion of the life of Jesus in his crucifixion, his death, burial, and then, of course, April 17th, his resurrection. And so we've been looking over the last several weeks at what we are calling the Passion Week of Jesus. The word Pasco means Passover, but it also means to suffer. Pasco is to suffer or literally to be handed over. Jesus will be handed over in this final week to the authorities uh, to be tried and then executed. And so we're looking at the suffering of Jesus in this final week of his life that all four of the Gospels spend a significant amount of time uh, uh, preparing us as the readers for this important event. And so we need to slow down. And so for the last several weeks, you have if you didn't hear the first message that Taylor gave three weeks ago on the beginning as Jesus comes in, uh, on the donkey, on the colt, and is, uh, uh, he is awarded king of Israel by the praise of the people. And then he goes to, the, to Olivet Discourse and Mount of Olives and teaches about the future that he will must suffer and die. And that things will get worse before they get better. Last week we looked at the Passover meal that Jesus, during this time of suffering, stop to prepare a meal and have a meal with his disciples during this Passover feast. Very traditional. Yet what he did in that moment is he changed the whole perspective of Passover from looking backwards at the event of Israel being removed from bondage from Egypt to looking forward to Jesus' death, which would ultimately bring freedom. For hundreds and thousands of years, for thousands of years, the people of Israel celebrated Passover to remind them that God delivered the people of Israel from bondage out of Egypt out of 400 years and brought them into freedom. And now Jesus says, you no longer need to look back, look forward, because what's going to happen in a few days from now is I will give my life. I'm the Passover lamb. And when I go to the cross, I bring ultimate freedom. I release you from the bondage of sin. The tyranny of the voices of Pharaoh. Listen back to that message. That was last week. This week, I want to look at what surrounds the Passover. So the meal is, is presented. Jesus comes with his disciples. And right after this, we know he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He will pray. Judas will arrive with the, with, the, with the Pharisees, with the leaders, and will arrest him. And then his trial begins. But prior to that, what we learn about Jesus in his suffering is that he will be betrayed one after another. Everyone will eventually will betray him or fall away, except for Mary. And that's what we learn about in this section of Scripture in Matthew chapter 25 and 26. Betrayal is a mighty powerful deterrent for meaningful relationships. Betrayal truly is a mighty powerful deterrent 
from meaningful relationships. It breaks apart many relationships. Film, literature is literally filled with examples. I mean, if you remember the, the old movie War of the Roses, I mean, these, this couple just could not get along. I mean, the house was divided literally. And they eventually, hanging on a chandelier, one reaches out to restore the relationship in the final moment, and you know what happens. The hand is released, and they both go to their doom, right? It's just like such a picture of what happens in betrayal oftentimes. I think of, uh, of Count of Monte Cristo, and I think of all the energy spent in betrayal, to reve the revenge of betrayal. I think of uh, Louis Zamperini, the, the local Torrance Airport is named after this man, this local Torrance man, USC runner, Olympian, in the war, shot down, and in his book, Unbroken, tells the story of war crimes against him and his final forgiveness. Rather than spending his life because he was betrayed in retribution, he lived a life of forgiveness. It's everywhere, even our own lives. Right now I'm in the middle of fighting State Farm, you know. Oh, did I mention that? I'm sorry, you might have State Farm. And I, I just feel so betrayed. Like, just pay the stinking bill. I'm the, you've insured me. I had a flood. Now pay for the re, my house to be put back together. Two years later, I'm still fighting with them. And I, feel, and I called my friend who's an attorney, and I just can't believe a company like this would do. And he goes, oh, Todd, you are so naive. And I'm like, it was first time, my friend, you are so naive to think that you are going to be fairly treated. And yet we do, I am naive because I expect to be fairly treated and I want to treat others that way. And it happens. But the question is, how did Jesus handle betrayal in his life? Jesus, Jesus let me just give it to you. He remains resolute to the plan of God even in the midst of betrayal. Often we become hurt. It alters the course of our life, and we are marked by hurt, caused by others, and Jesus stays the course. In the midst of suffering, the betrayal circled Jesus around the, bat, the Passover meal with his disciples like vultures over a dying wildebeest trapped in mud in the African Sahara. The Passover meal this beautiful time to celebrate liberation and freedom and forgiveness. Jesus personally is experiencing betrayal. Isn't that amazing to you? In the midst of one of the most beautiful meals in all the scripture, Jesus internally is experiencing all the emotion of betrayal. In fact, in Matthew chapter 25 or 26, let me just read it to you. Here's what it says. Jesus finishes his words with his disciples, and then it's, you know, that after two days the Pascha will come, and the Huios of Anthropos, the Son of Man, will be handed over. 
paradidomai, will be handed over for crucifixion, betrayal. Jesus begins the context of this, these last few days of his life by describing that betrayal is coming. He knows it. And we see that. And so in verse 3, the chief priests and the elders gather together in the courts and they plot together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. It's right there in the scripture. Jesus is in Bethany. There's a dinner with Simon the leper and a woman named Mary, this beautiful woman who has on other occasions, sat at his feet, this time breaks open the alabaster oil, the most costly perfume that you could own, the most valuable thing that she probably owned in her life. And she didn't just like, well, I'll give him a few drops. And then I'll save the rest for safekeeping for the future. She poured the whole thing out. I mean, who does that? I mean, that seems rather... Uh, What's the right word? Finance people. Francois, what would, be that? what would be the right word? What is it? Extravagant. Extravagant. And financially, probably kind of irresponsible, right? I mean, seriously, if that's all, that's your net worth. I mean, we could go on and on about Mary and just this beautiful, my body, she did this to prepare me for my burial. And then in the John 12 account, they... They identify the disciple that argues over why this was a bad move on Mary's part. Then Judas, one of the twelve, is to betray paradidomy, hand Jesus over and goes to the priests and uh, basically charges uh, 30 pieces of silver for Jesus' life. Then the evening comes, and he sits down with them and he says, I know one of you will betray me. And they all are deeply grieved. And the one who dips his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as is written of him. But woe to that man. It would be better if he wasn't even born. The Passover happens. The meal comes together. Jesus uses the bread and the wine to describe his body broken for them to bring them freedom. And then you will, all befall, you will all fall away, it says in verse 31. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall scatter. Peter says, even though all may fall away, I will not. I am not going to fall away, Jesus. The boldness of Peter. The betrayal of Judas. The betrayal of Judas, the plotting of Jesus to kill Jesus, and the boldness of Peter. Peter says, I won't. And Jesus says, you will. Unfortunately, you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, you don't even have to die for you. I won't deny you. And the disciples said the same thing. So Peter not only says, I won't. Jesus says he will. Peter says, you're wrong. He tells the Son of God, you're wrong. Yeah, maybe you've been right about a lot of things, but you're going to be wrong about this one. I love Peter. So what do we learn about all this? I want to just look at a couple things. I want to look at the betrayal, the paradidomai in Greek. 
of Judas versus the scandalizo from scandal. It's scandalous, which is simply a falling away. And there's a difference between falling away and betraying. And we can learn something about that, but we can also learn something about how Jesus responded to this betrayal. You know, before I jump into this, a lot of pastors, let me just tell you something that I, I have never forgotten this. A lot of pastors resign over one person that just continues to hound them. They just have it within them to go after the pastor. Like, I just don't like that guy, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life making his life miserable. And instead of the pastor looking out over the congregation saying, I have a wonderful flock. We have a wonderful family. And we just got one bad apple. They focus on the one bad apple and want to resign. And oft, I have seen it happen. 30 years of ministry. I know the stories. I've seen it happen where they just say, I'm out. Forget it. I'm out. Happened to me once. A lot of people feel this way about the church. They feel like the church has betrayed me. The pastor, staff member, someone in the church. We just need to keep coming back to this scene of Jesus being betrayed and ask the question, how did he respond? Because if that's true, then how should we respond in the midst of it? Because you will be betrayed. Jesus said, even me, the Son of Man, will be betrayed. So do we think maybe we won't? So we need to look at this. And so I want to contrast just for a minute Judas. And it says Judas prepared, plotted. He weighed out the 30 pieces of silver. He began to look for an opportunity to betray. I mean, there's a lot of forethought in this in, Peter, in, in Judas's life. In fact, oftentimes it's referenced to Judas. Like in John chapter 12, when Mary pours out that oil, Judas is the one that says, we should have, Jesus, this was irresponsible, financially irresponsible, because that money could have gone to the poor, yet John says in John 12, he didn't really care about the poor. He was a thief, and he was stealing from the coffers. That's what John says about Judas. He says that in John chapter 12, the guy was a thief. I mean, he later will become the one who betrays Jesus, but he had something going on in his heart that wasn't right, that he never resolved. Something deep within him was off. And we see a contrast between that and Peter, who had a tender heart. He was bold. Yeah, he was as bold as a lion, but he was also as scared as a mouse. In the middle of a storm, he cries out because he's scared that he's going to drown. Yet he's the guy that stepped out of the boat. And here in this situation, we find Peter coming to terms with his fear through this process and finding greater strength, not in himself, but in the one who made him who he was. He recognized that in his denial when he felt so ashamed after he denied Jesus. Even in Luke 22, verse 32, Jesus will say, Peter, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Why did Jesus pray for Peter but not for Judas? Bigger question is, why did Jesus choose Judas to be one of his twelve? These are really hard questions. 
Unless, of course, it points to the fact that within every single community, there's the possibility of a Judas. And even in Judas's most closest circle of relationships, there was somebody in it that would betray him. And yet, it did not thwart him from his purpose and his plan. And he moved forward. That is profound. Think about that. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Peter wanted nothing more than to love his master. He just needed to know where his source of strength and power came from. And he thought it came from himself, and he learned that it came from Jesus. Judas, on the other hand, will realize that his soul was owned by another, and he couldn't buy it back. He had a heart defect that came out later in his life. He had an image of the Messiah that was not. Jesus over and over said, No, Judas, I am not here to wage a war with Rome. No, Judas, I am not here about storing up wealth in this life. Your money will rot your life if it's your focus. That's what Jesus said. It will rot your life if it is your focus. So you better find another focus in life. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing that becomes bad when it becomes an idol. So you see this massive contrast uh, Vanstone, I mentioned Vanstone. Dr. Vanstone wrote a book called The Stature of Waiting, and in it he compares and contrasts two particular words, um, prodidomai and paradidomai. And paradidomai is to betray, is to hand over, not really betray, but kind of hand over like it to a court, to be handed over. And he says Judas really was used by God to be hand over Jesus, kind of almost innocently. And really only in one occasion, Luke mentions it, that he is filled with Satan and he prodidomizes, not paradidomizes, he prodidomizes, which is the other word, which means more effectively to betray, the intention to betray. Now, those words are very, very closely similar and they fall within, and this is way off the course, but in the same semantic domain in the Greek language. Semantic domains control, and you have to really understand context. And in the Luke context, the word there is significant when it's combined with the idea that Satan filled his heart. So when you look at that fact that something else was going on in, in Judas, you recognize the word really did mean to betray. And whether he was just simply being used by God or he really truly intended to betray because of something deeper in his heart. We know that Judas owned it. And he felt tremendous remorse. And he took his own life afterwards. He couldn't live with himself. It's a sad picture of what betrayal does. And on the other hand, we see this beautiful picture of Peter who comes out of this with strength and power. And how does Jesus treat his disciples in the midst of all this? Knowing you're all going to betray me. You would think, dinner's over. Get out of my house. I'm on my own. I'm going to the Garden of Gethsemane alone because I already know you're all going to fall asleep. I mean, think of that. Isn't that what you'd say? That's what I'd say. 
why bother coming to the Garden of Gethsemane if you're simply going to fall asleep when I'm asking you to stand with me in my most emotionally traumatic moment before my crucifixion? I am going to literally sweat blood. Not really, but his heart is just going to hurt. And he's going to call upon the Lord. And yet, he pulls his disciples in and he says the most beautiful thing with great compassion in light of their weakness. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Though He could have said, you, you're all losers. I should have chosen better disciples. He could have said a lot of things, but he said, I, I, gentlemen, brothers, friends, loved ones, I understand that the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak in all of you. I understand human nature. Because here I am pouring out my heart because I don't want to go forward with this. And Lord, if there's another way, I would take it. And Jesus decides that it is far greater to go to the cross to save mankind than to save himself and go back and sit on the right-hand throne of God. It's a beautiful picture of the compassion of Jesus. I love that our Lord does not throw us out because we are weak and fall asleep at the moment of testing. These are understanding words. These are very compassionate words. It really is a beautiful picture. Uh, there was a study done by, oh, uh, I won't go into it. It's a, it's a huge, gigantic thing, and I'm out of time. But I was going to tell you the whole story about my, my A in psychology in college at Cal. I didn't get very many of them, but I did get an A. Every once in a while, you know, a dog gets a bone. And I got, I, you know, and, and back then in the 80s, for some of you who don't know this, the way you found out your grade was you give them a postcard. You give your professor a postcard with your name and address on it and a, and a postage stamp. And then they put a grade on it and send it. Send it. The, the only thing that was scary about that is that I'd send it home because the minute this quarter was over, I'd go home to do my laundry because I never knew how to run a washer and dryer. But that's a whole nother story. Uh about the way in which I grew up. But I was very thankful for the way I grew up. And I didn't have to do lots of those kinds of things. We had a live-in maid. And I, I, I li so I've, I've lived a lot of my life ashamed of my past for the way in which I um, was raised and, the, and the, um, the privilege. I'm not ashamed of it anymore. And uh, it was a great honor. And yet I saw life from the top down as opposed from the bottom up. And I've heard a lot of stories that move me about people that have lived with nothing and grown up with that and seen it from another direction. And I've had tremendous compassion and I've learned a lot in life. And going into the ministry was not just simply, um, well, anyway, we're not going to go there. But um, it's a deeply emotional thing for me. And I, and I remember this reading this so I did really well in psychology. I don't know why, but for some reason, I just kind of figured that out. Human nature, maybe common sense. And I was a political economics you know, t um, major. 
And theories and all of that were harder for me than just how humans work. And I did really well. But there was a joint project dealing with betrayal and close relationships. Does commitment promote forgiveness? And of course it does. The greater the commitment, the greater the forgiveness, which actually helps you work through betrayal. And this was this big study that was done between uh, Carnegie Mellon University and, and um, uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And betrayal incidents involve norm violations, and it talks all about that. And the philosophical literature l tends to, very, it's very dichotomous to what happens in a betrayal situation. And yet what these particular professors discovered is that it's not all or nothing. It's, it's this partial is more realistic. We partially forgive and it helps us and commitment plays a key role in all that. And what I've learned is that, yeah, that's true, but what I see in here in this passage is the profound forgiveness of Christ toward his disciples. Profound. And I see that he, he opened himself up he opened up his life, got hurt, opened himself up again. And so what do we do with all this as we close this morning? Two things. Here they are. Jesus patiently endured the portrayal because he knew that after suffering, something better was coming. That's how he did, was able to do it. He knew it had a purpose. And if you know the betrayal has a purpose in your life. You too could endure it in any relationship. Now for Jesus in John 25, he, he talks about the coming of the Son of Man. And he will come in his glory in the angels and will sit on the glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered. Then the king will say in his right, Come, you are blessed in my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation. This is the king of Jesus the Messiah who is coming to restore world order. He is the one. He will do it. And Jesus knew that about himself. In Philippians 2, the great kenosis passage where Jesus empties himself and takes the form of a bondservant, so we should be in the same likeness as Jesus, setting aside our pride and taking on the bondservant role, it says, knowing that he was going to the Father. John 13, same thing. In the middle of this dinner, he gets on his knees, takes a towel, and washes these disciples' feet and the ones that will eventually fall away because he knows who he is and what he was going to accomplish. Something better was coming out of suffering, and it's true in our lives as well. All over Scripture, we see that. Here, First Peter says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. First Peter chapter 2, 21. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to those who judged him. He bore sins, his body on a cross, so that we might die to sins and live in forgiveness. By his wounds, you were healed. By his wounds, you were healed. And that's true of us. By your sins, or by your, by your sins, excuse me, by his wounds, you have been healed. By the wounds done to you, you bring healing to somebody else. I 
I have a whole other story of betrayal that I experienced at a church many, many years ago. It was one of the most, and I, I actually left the ministry as a result of this, and I felt truly betrayed. Yeah, I, I was an accomplice to it, and I, you know, reacted the wrong way in the middle of a situation, and yet the punishment was greater than the crime. Punishment was greater than the crime. And um, I went after the senior pastor, like, I thought you had my back in this situation, and he got mad at me and said, nobody powers up over me. I'm like, what? What is going on here? And I got, I got basically um, sidelined in ministry. And I had two secretaries. I had a team of like 50 volunteers. I was one of the most important ministries the church had. And I was the director of it. And I went to, from that position, turning my computer in, to being a member on the grounds crew. So my job was to take care of the property, 150 acres, all through the winter, the spring. And during the spring, the snow would melt, and in this huge parking lot, it was gravel, the gravel would be pushed up with the snow against where the cars are parked, and all the gravel had to be pulled back. And I was given a rake, and I was told to go out there and rake the gravel and pull the gravel back and put it back in its place. And while I was doing that, I was weeping day after day after day after day. I went to seminary. You don't know the, the position that I have in my own community. You don't understand who I am. And on and on, the voices carried on in my, my head. And I was angry. I was sad. I was betrayed. I wept. And I listened to Brennan Manning, and I listened to this. I had a little Sony cassette tech, tape, tape deck and had these in my ears, and I had this, and I had one cassette tape on Luke chapter 6 where it says that Jesus went up to a mountain and prayed and chose his disciples, and one of them was Judas, who would become a prodidomai, a betrayer, a traitor. And Brennan Manning in the sermon says, how is that possible that Jesus would choose his community with a traitor? And he spent the whole sermon talking about how important it is for us to understand within community to push through forgiveness even when there's someone that's out to get you. And there is something good that happens. Jesus comes out of that and begins ministering to people in the community. And his ministry flourishes. And the plan of God is worked out. God uses all people in our lives to work out God's plan. One last thing, and then we're done. And then we're going to have some communion together. We learn that returning to reinitiate meaningful relationship is the way Jesus in suffering. It's the way of Jesus. Returning to reinitiate meaningful relationship. John 21 is the most beautiful passage. Disciples have left. Jesus has been crucified. He's resurrected. His disciples are out fishing. Jesus comes to them now in a resurrected state and stands on the shore. And he doesn't sit there and say, what are you guys up to? I called you to become fishers of men. He says, have you had breakfast? Peter sees it's the Lord, jumps into the water, and swims to him. And Jesus has this beautiful, 
beautiful conversation with his disciples about, do you love me? Yes, Lord, we love you. Then feed my sheep. I'm calling you back. Come back. See, Jesus knew that. He reinitiated. I was talking to someone, and I, I won't mention their name because it's their dream, not my dream. But it was a dream about journeying to a monastery. They finally got to the monastery, and they sat in the monastery with the monks to eat a meal, and then they accosted him and beat him up and threw him out. And he ran away, and then he came back, and a woman was there that nursed his soul and brought compassion to him. He sat back down, and they all received him. And I know what it means for this person. But I, I think it's just so, it's just uncanny that they would share that with me as I'm teaching this message. About living a cross-shaped life means that you work through betrayal because Jesus did, and you hang in there because God has a greater plan. Let's pray. So, Father, Lord, we know that it is a, um, it is a tremendous pain and hardship to go through when we feel um, unheard, mistreated. And yet, Father, you have uh, done a great work in it in, our li through our, in and through our lives, and we have Jesus to thank because um, as we go to the communion table, we take the bread and drink the juice in remembrance of his life who was broken for us, who did not turn back but leaned into betrayal for the sake of something better. May we also understand that in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we all stand together as we uh, worship together before we take communion and ready our hearts.
to give his only son to make a wretched treasure and how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen Bring many sons to glory And behold the man upon a cross My sin upon his shoulders Ashamed I hear my mocking out among the scoffers and it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished his dying breath has brought me
tradition we, we're going to end off the service we close and there is communion uh, available it's just little packets with some grape juice and a little wafer on the top but um, what it symbolizes is the body of Christ given for us as Todd said pushing through the betrayal pushing through the heartbreak going past the point where most of us would have stopped a long time ago and said forget this I'm out of here. I'm going to another dimension. Forget you people. But Jesus resolutely walked through it and gave his body and his blood that we can have life and wholeness. And so I, I just pray your hearts have been mine. My heart's been moved today. And I just love the fact that y'all, we don't have to stay the same. We don't have to stay stuck in unforgiveness and bitterness, stuck in our hurts. And so let's celebrate that today. And, and we just close, so you can, the music will keep playing. Um, Elizabeth and, and Rachel are just going to keep playing some music, but feel free to partake. And we are delighted to learn and grow together as a family as we approach 
that great day of Easter. God bless you all.